0: Come with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Resurrection chapter, of course. And we'll just read a few verses together from the beginning. Paul writing, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures that he was seen by Cephas, or by Peter that is, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Amen. Now, When it comes to the subject of death, Christianity can boldly declare that no other religion can declare. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes Christianity distinct from all other belief systems because no other belief system in the world has been founded and has a leader who has lived and died and rose again, nevermore to die. The resurrection was the touch paper that ignited the early church. John Stott remarks about this. He says, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. It was the resurrection which turned Peter's fear into courage, Thomas's doubt into faith. It was the resurrection which changed the Sabbath into Sunday, and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle and turned his persecuting into preaching. What does the resurrection mean to us today? The resurrection was at the very heart of all apostolic preaching. From the very first sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost by Peter all the way through with the apostles, and particularly with the great apostle Paul, we find that the cross and the resurrection was at the very heart of all of it. And it took the resurrection to make sense of the cross, to make it valid, to authenticate the uh, sense of it and the importance of it and the reality of it. And so it authenticated uh, the cross. Now, let me just give you a couple of things first of all. It shows us that Jesus Christ is God. Romans 1 and 4 says Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, others lived and died and rose again. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels is recorded three occasions in which He personally raised people From the dead. The difference was that they lived a little while afterwards and then they died again and went into the grave, never more to rise. However, when Christ died, he conquered the grave and he rose again and lives now in the power of an endless life. So it makes a massive difference. Romans 6 and 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He said, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And so the resurrection proves and shows that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Secondly, it is the cornerstone of our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 If we read from verse 12, Paul states, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He could ask that question to probably three quarters of the ministers of the Church of England today who do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Amazing, isn't it? If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so Paul, in this one statement, absolutely focuses on the resurrection as the great central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without this, there is no gospel. Without this, in fact, he says that we preachers are liars. We are deceivers, and you're the ones that are being deceived. That's how he was about this. And so this is not an optional extra to what to believe. This is the absolute truth. And everything we believe in Christianity hangs upon this truth. And so Paul said, without this, then there is absolutely nothing. It's the cornerstone of our faith. The fact that Christ's resurrection was so visibly proven by so many people, including the disciples, that became the bedrock of their faith. That was the thing that absolutely changed them, that Christ was indeed alive. Now, we too have the evidence of Scripture. We too have the evidence of a changed life. We too have the evidence of a long history of martyrs, men and women, Who gave their lives for Jesus, who'd never seen Him in the flesh, but yet have believed. Let me give you quickly seven reasons why God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Him from the dead for our justification. Romans 4.25. We preached so I'll, I'll just quote this, but we preached in this, I think it was last week. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. Now it is true that he went to the cross and died and shed his blood to justify us. But that was authenticated. That was proven by. God validated that by raising Jesus from the dead. That became our justification. God raised him from the dead to prove his deity. Romans chapter 1, 3 to 4, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Christianity is like no other religion and our founder is like no other founder of any other religion because he was and is indeed God. God. He was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And he has risen again, and he is still God, and he's still in flesh because he's got a flesh and bone body to this day. But he is deity. He is God. God raised him from the dead to be head of the church. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, he has put all things under his feet and give him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose to become the head of the church, which is his body and earth, which is us today. God raised him from the dead that we may walk in the power of a new life. Romans 6, 4 and 5. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now here's an important point for you to know and understand. Jesus died and rose again physically. It was a physical resurrection. There's those who say it was mystical. There's those who say it was spiritual. But it was a physical resurrection. But his physical resurrection, that's what gave us this spiritual life that we possess. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, now we have risen up, because of the resurrection in newness of life, that's what what our baptism is all about. For example, when you're water baptized, you're declaring that you are you were spiritually dead, and that now you are buried. And when you come up out of the water, it's like a resurrection. You come up in newness of life. That's what it symbolizes. It symbolizes you are spiritually dead, but you've been made alive in Christ. You have risen up a newness of life. When something's dead, what do you do? You bury it. And that old life, that old life that we had should be dead and buried because we have risen up in a new life, the life of Christ in us. And so, make the point again, his physical death, his physical resurrection resulted in our spiritual resurrection. Us having newness of life and rising up in new life. However, it even goes further than that because God raised him from the dead that you and I now might be raised physically from the dead. Not only are we spiritually resurrected in Christ, but we will have a physical resurrection one day also. That's why Romans 8 and 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Now, let me just read this to you. Over in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then he goes on to say to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter says that you and I as Christians today have got a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead, we shall also rise from the dead. Paul says this corruption shall put on incorruption, this mortality shall put on immortality. And as a Christian pastor over 30 plus five years, whatever it is, after dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals I have conducted, what a great hope it is when you stand around a grave and the family knows that their loved one will rise again in the resurrection and will rise in the resurrection of the just and will be in heaven. What a a confidence that gives you to take that funeral. I've also taken several funerals when I couldn't state that and I couldn't say that with any conviction at all. In fact, I didn't say it because I didn't know. There was no witness. There was no testimony. There was no life lived. I couldn't give any false hope. But what a joy it is when you can't say, this one has been buried, has been laid to rest, the physical body, but one day will rise up and have a new body like unto His glorious body. See, these are the things that makes Christianity unique. These are the things that we stress at Easter time especially to remind ourselves of why Christianity is so special, why we have got what we have got today. What a hope that gives us. Of course, nobody wants to lose a loved one. We're in no hurry to die. We know that. But at the end of it, at the end of the day, what a confidence and what a hope we have got if that happens and when it happens. Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. But then also God raised him from the dead that he might be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 32 and 33. This Jesus God has raised up. This is Peter preaching the day of Pentecost. Of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you both see and hear. So Peter now has come out of the upper room. He's preaching to the assembled crowd. They'd heard the great noise, they heard the prayers, the worship, the signs, they'd heard the tongue spoken. Wonderful. And he comes out now and he preaches in his own language to them and he tells them, this that you see and hear has happened because the Father has raised the Son up from the dead and now He's pouring out the promised Holy Spirit. He is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3? Do you remember what he said about Christ? He said, there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to unbuckle his shoes as it were. The body says, He will baptize you. I'm baptizing you in water, but He will baptize you in the Holy Ghost and with fire. So let me unpack that a little. The moment you receive Christ into your life, at that moment, something wonderful, supernatural took place. At that moment, listen to me carefully, at that moment you were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes you into the body of Christ. Christ is the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now this is important. Let me show you this from Scripture. In Romans Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just give you one scripture. Well, let's read from verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. Now, at that moment of the new birth, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the new birth. At that moment, He, as it were, baptized you into the great body of Christ. And you become part of the family of God, which is the body of Christ on earth. And it's something that you can't do for yourself. Signing a form won't do it. Man can't do it for you. It's something that's supernatural that God does. And when it happens, you know that it's happened. There's a witness that it's happened, that you're a part of the family of God. That's one thing. But then, after that, then it is Christ who baptizes you into the Holy Spirit. And you know when that happens also. Because new life has come. A new appreciation of the things of God. And suddenly your life is being transformed. And it's all done by God and by the Holy Spirit and by His Son. And this is the mystery of godliness. This is the mystery of the gospel. How can you fully explain and fully understand that. You receive that by faith and that's what transformed your very life because these are important things for us to understand and to know that this is what God has done for us. God raised him from the dead that he might be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. God raised him from the dead that he might be a prince the and the Savior in Acts chapter 5, 30 and 31. Peter again says, The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand, to his right hand to be prince and savior. In fact, he says that in Acts chapter 3 15 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He calls him the Prince and Savior. Prince there means originator. It means the author. He's the originator. He's the author of life. Can you imagine that here is the originator, here is the author of life itself, and men killed the author of life and put him on a cross? You can see how that could never have happened unless God allowed it, unless the Son of God allowed that to happen. How can you kill the author of life? How can you kill the originator of life except unless he allows that to happen? So even though Peter says whom you murdered and put on a tree and that is true physically they did that but yet none of that could happen. It never would have happened except God the Father allowed it. In fact God the Father designed it to happen that way. That he might be a prince and a saviour. See how he was exalted to the right hand had to be raised from the dead. And then finally, God raised him from the dead. And I won't dwell on this because we preached on it a couple of weeks ago to be our intercessor and our advocate. Romans eight thirty Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we taught a couple of weeks ago that Christ Part of His great ministry today is to sit at the right hand of the Father to be our intercessor and also to be our great high priest. That's two of His great ministries today. Both of them are for you and for me upon this earth. Amen. And so all of this was contingent, of course, upon His resurrection from the dead. Without a resurrection, I would have no message to preach this morning. Without a resurrection, we might as well close the Bible. We might as well put the bar in the door. We might as well go out and walk in the park for all the difference it would make. But the resurrection made all of the difference. Now, the reason why I ask you to turn to the Scripture, the text that we turned to at the beginning, was for this, because the evidences of Christ's physical appearances after the resurrection. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in this little section, verses 5 to 9. This is why he wrote this. So that you and I would be reminded of the physical evidences of his resurrection. You say, well, why is that important? It's very important because there's many who try to deny it. There's many high church people who try to deny this and say it was hallucinations they were having. They were imagining it. They so wanted this to happen. They imagined these things. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't believe that. John Philip says that the evidence of Christ's resurrection is the best proven fact in history, that there is more documentary evidence for the resurrection of Christ than for the conquest of Britain by Julius Caesar. That's a big statement, isn't it? But it's true. So Paul states categorically, 1 Corinthians 15 and 5, he was Seen. And then after saying he was seen, he shows who he was seen by. These witnesses were reliable, they were trustworthy, and all of them bear record that Jesus rose from the dead. And all of them, this was a life-changing moment when they saw the risen, resurrected Lord. This was the most momentous event in all of history and these were the ones who were there to see it with their own physical eyes. No one could rob them of this evidence. First of all, Paul says he was seen by Peter. Tony alluded to this when he was speaking, sharing in the communion there. In the space of just six weeks, think about it, 40 days, six weeks, Peter went, from being an unmitigated card to being the boldest preacher of Jesus Christ that there was in all of Israel. In six weeks, something profound happened to Peter. We know Peter's history. We know what he was. We know what he did. We know how ashamed he was that he denied Christ and all of that. And yet, in just six weeks... Suddenly, everything changed. And in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, in 27 verses, six times he mentions the resurrection. So we know what changed his mind. We know what changed the course of his life. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then Paul says he was seen by the twelve... Now, of course, the twelve here was minus Judas because Judas was, had gone out and hung himself. But because they were known as the twelve, that Paul felt it okay to say he was seen of the twelve. Now, in Christ's 11 or 12 post-resurrection appearances over that six-week period, let's record it. Remember the very first time Whenever he appeared to his disciples, the very first time there was only eleven there, because it, there was only sorry, only ten there because Judas was gone and Thomas was missing. No Thomas present. The third time, the last time he appears to the disciples group, we preached in this a few weeks ago and in another context. There were seven of them present. Remember, they went to Peter says, "I go fishing." And they followed Peter. There were seven in there and he met them at the shore. He made them a breakfast of fish and got that great boatload of fish they caught and then took Peter aside and dealt with those three denials. I asked him three times, do you love me? But the first time, Thomas was missing. We don't know why he was missing, the Bible doesn't say. Perhaps he was despondent. Maybe he was a bit confused, a bit depressed, or maybe he just couldn't be bothered. Did you ever feel he just couldn't be bothered? Well, you know, Thomas didn't go. And the trouble is that we make so many excuses, oftentimes not to be in the house of the Lord. By the way, This was Resurrection Sunday. And it was Sunday evening. We make so many excuses why we don't go to church. Well, I just can't be bothered and tired and fed up. I'm just not feeling so bright today and we go on and we go on. I'm not talking about physical ailments and maladies. I'm not talking about the occasions when things happen you can't do anything about. I'm not talking about that or holidays. I'm not talking about those things. I'm just talking about this apathetic, indifferent attitude and for whatever reason, here's Thomas and this is what he's doing. But the trouble is, he wasn't there when Jesus suddenly appeared in the midst. And because he wasn't there and I've written it down, here's some of the things that he missed that night. He missed Christ in the midst. He missed the opportunity to touch Jesus. He missed the peace that Christ gave that night. He missed the opportunity to fellowship with Jesus. He missed the chance to hear Christ open up the Scriptures. What an opportunity missed. He missed the commissioning to preach Christ to all nations. He missed that. He missed the final instructions of Christ. He missed the breath of the Holy Spirit that Christ breathed upon them. He missed that. He missed the joy of being in Christ. He missed so many things just because he couldn't bother to be there. And even when the disciples told him that Jesus was in the midst, he didn't believe them. See, the trouble is if we keep missing church for no good reason, you know what happens? Unbelief comes in. Doubt comes in. That's when the enemy can start to play havoc with your mind and what you believe. That's why the New Testament makes a big issue out of church. That's why it's there, partly. And so, the following week, the disciples meet. He's with them this time. He's with them this time. He's thought more about it. And he thought to himself, well, if this is really true, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to be there. He said to the disciples, listen, I will not believe unless I see him. Unless I put my finger into those nail prints and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. And they probably says, well, that's okay. We saw him. We believe. Why did you come along? He might show up again. There's no guarantee he would. He didn't say he would. But he was going to make sure if he did, he would be there. And sure enough, the next week, When he went to the house of God, when he met, as it were, the house, what happened? Jesus suddenly appeared. What was the first thing Jesus said? He looked at Thomas, and he says, Thomas, do not be faithless but believing. Come on, take your finger, put it into these nail prints, take your hand, put it into my side. Don't be faithless but believing. Remember what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. (laughs) What a statement. My Lord and my God. Not just Messiah, my God. Suddenly, the resurrection changed him forever. In that one moment, any doubts, any unbelief was absolutely just blasted away out of his life. Do you know those are the last recorded words? of Thomas in the scriptures. My Lord and my God. And he went from that meeting that night, his life was never the same. Tradition says that eventually he made his way to India sharing Christ and preaching the gospel. And tradition says he was martyred while he was praying on his knees. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the twelve. He was seen by five hundred brethren at one time. Now, there's no record of this in the Gospels, but the fact that Paul mentions it, it was mighty important for Paul to mention it. And the fact that this, listen to this, was 25 years after the resurrection. Paul's writing this to the Corinthians. And the fact that Paul says, out of that 500, many are still alive today. Many are still eyewitnesses. Although some have fallen asleep in Christ, some are dead in Christ. But many are still alive. So the evidence was very, very clear. Now, we don't know where this happened, Probably, most likely, it happened in Galilee, where most of his followers came from, rather than in Jerusalem. We don't know why they met together at one time, in one place. Perhaps they heard the rumors from Galilee, what happened in Jerusalem. Maybe they heard all the talk that was going on, the whole place was a buzz, that the so-called Hebrew Messiah that was slew on a cross has risen again. I mean, it was the talk of the whole place and it probably got back to Galilee and maybe they met together. I don't know, I'm speculating. Maybe they met together to discuss this, talk about this. What did you hear? Who said what? Is this true? Can this be true? And suddenly, when those 500 met, suddenly Jesus, the living, risen Son of God, appears in the midst of it. He just materializes in the midst of them. What a meeting that would have been. Would you like to have been there? Wouldn't that have been Something. 500 people. And suddenly Jesus just appears. And Paul says, they're eyewitnesses, they're testimonies, they have seen him. Then Paul said he was seen by James. By James. There was two disciples called James within the twelve. There's two called Judas, by the way, but there's two called James. But he's not talking about those two. He's talking about James, the Lord's brother here. Actually, his half-brother. Jesus had four brothers and several sisters. You can read that in Matthew's Gospel. One of them is James. None of them, none of them, not one of them believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. Not one of them until the resurrection. Can you imagine James, who was probably next to Jesus, Jesus being the eldest? I say he was half-brother, by the way. They were all half-brothers and half-sisters because they all had the same mother, but not the same father because Jesus, his father, was the Lord God. But can you imagine James growing up and here's his older brother. He's watching him every day from the moment he's born until Jesus is about 30 years of age so he began his ministry and he's off. He's growing up with him, watching, listening, seeing, seeing his attitudes, his character, his behavior, his words. And yet, Even with that, even with the holiness of Christ growing up, even with the perfect life that he lived growing up, it still didn't register with James or any of his siblings that this is the Son of God, this is Messiah, this is the Anointed One, and He is the Son of God. It didn't register with them. The only thing changed their minds, and His mind was the resurrection. When Jesus appeared and he saw him in the flesh physically in the resurrection, then he was changed forever. And he became the great leader of the community of Christians at Jerusalem. He was like the bishop, as it were, in Jerusalem. And he wrote the little book of James towards the end of the New Testament. And it took the resurrection to convince James that his half-brother was and is the Son of God. Then it says, leaving aside Mary Magdalene and the other woman at the tomb, leaving aside, Paul leaves aside the two that he met on the road to Emmaus that morning, leaving that aside, he said he was seen by all the apostles. Now this may not just refer to the twelve who were separate in a separate category as it were. In fact, not even the great apostle Paul was counted as the, one of the twelve apostles. Remember after Judas went out and hung himself, how the, you know, whenever they were waiting in the upper room, how they, they drew lots and Matthias was chosen to make up the twelve. So not even the great apostle Paul was counted as the, the twelve. So when it says he appeared to, seen by all the apostles, probably is talking about the, remember the 70 he sent forth, the ones he sent out? Apostle means sent one. So it's probably referring to all of those. And so there's a great, tremendous number of people who saw Christ alive after the resurrection. And then finally he says, and last of all, he was seen by me. Saul of Tarsus, his conversion was the most radical, the most spectacular conversion in the whole of the New Testament, wasn't it? I mean, that journey on the road to Damascus, when Christ met him on the road to Damascus, suddenly, what a story. In Acts 9, we haven't time to read it today, but you read it when you go home. What a wonderful testimony and story of how the risen Christ met with Saul of Tarsus. This tremendous gifted, bright, radical man, and how Christ changed him forever. This Pharisee, this persecutor of Christians, this, I could say, prosecutor of Christians even, and how he becomes the great preacher of the gospel. The great antagonist becomes the great apostle Something dramatic had to happen to change that man. And of course it was the resurrection. And so Paul lists and enumerates all of these people. There's hundreds of them there that all seen Christ alive and testified that the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Christ was real and true. A.W. Tozer, great old preacher of old, said, I believe that Christ died for me because it is incredible. I believe that he rose from the dead because it is impossible. And as Christians, that's what you and I are called to do to believe the impossible, to believe the incredible. And we believe in an empty cross, an empty tomb, and a Christ filled throne. That's what we are called to believe. Robert Leslie Holmes, says that one day Michelangelo challenged his fellow artists. Why is it, he asked them, that you fill gallery after gallery with portraits of Christ and abject weakness on the cross? Why do you picture him hanging as a dead man, as though that were the last word we have about him? Do you not know that the cross was not the last word? <laughs> Aren't you glad that the cross was not the last word? <coughs> the resurrection was the last word. That was the thing that sealed it all. Christ's glorious resurrection. I'm going to finish in a second. Many, many years ago at a great Nazi rally in Berlin, a pastor was in the midst of their listening. One of the speakers spotted him. and Before all, he shouted out, Pastor Schutes. You are a fool for believing in a crucified, dead Jew. Pastor Shutes stood up in the midst in a strong, confident voice. Here's what he said. Sir, I would indeed be a fool if I believed in a dead, crucified Jew. But sir, I believe in the living, risen Son of God. And that is all the difference, isn't it? Not on a cross anymore, not in a tomb anymore, but on a throne at the Father's right hand. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Death couldn't hold him, death won't hold you. Death couldn't defeat him, it's not going to defeat you. His victory is your victory. You will rise from your problems. You will overcome in your battles. Jesus is conquer over death and hell and problems and difficulties and crises. He is a conquer over all of that because he rose from the dead and he lives forevermore. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you today that we can preach such a message of hope and truth and reality. We thank you that you did rise from the dead. And that's why, Lord, we can leave this house today with confidence and absolutely assured of our salvation because Christ has risen from the grave. And so we bless you for this wonderful victory. We thank you for all of those across the world today and the untold millions who will celebrate with us the risen, living Son of God. We thank you, Lord, that one day you are coming back again and every eye shall see you. And we bless you, Lord, that whenever we do see you that we will also see those scars in your hands. You will keep them there for all eternity as a witness. And so we bless you today and we give you thanks for your grace and mercy that has saved us and changed us forever.